I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Never mind the pension scammers. Are the people most likely to have designs on your retirement savings actually members of your own family? Super Mario to the rescue! Mario Draghi said last week there were no limits to how far the European Central Bank would go to secure its mandate for inflation. Does this mean investors should consider buying European equities? And London helped to buy. Will the government scheme designed to give first-time buyers a leg up in the capital's stratospheric property market really provide enough of a boost? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT Money colleagues Josephine Cumbo and James Pickford and our income investing columnist Micah Curry of Fidelity Worldwide. April's pension freedoms unshackled retirement savers from having to buy an annuity, but they also gave savers over the age of 55 the ability to access substantial cash sums. This has opened up an array of investment opportunities, but also some tricky moral dilemmas. Eight months on, Financial advisors and lawyers have been talking to FT Money's award-winning pensions correspondent, Josephine Cumbo, about some of the more extreme scenarios they have found themselves in when advising clients. Josephine, thanks for joining us today. Your cover feature this week begins with a startling scenario, if I may say so. A family of a 74-year-old man on a life support machine gathered around his bedside, debating whether to switch it off. But alongside the medical advice, they were also seeking financial advice. Why? Yes, this is incredible as it sounds. This is a real case scenario which was put to a financial advisor. And the reason that it was put to him was because the man at 74 who was on life support and was quite wealthy, the family had to consider what would happen to his wealth. He had a lot of wealth. If he died uh, before the age of 75, he was in income drawdown. All his pension wealth could be inherited by his beneficiaries tax-free, and that's quite a significant... This is a new change. This is new. This came into effect in April. There were changes this year. But from the age of 75, anyone who inherited, the beneficiaries who inherited his pension wealth could potentially have to pay up to half of that money to the taxman. So very difficult conversations, but hanging heavy over those conversations was that need to consider the tax implications of the man's future. Now, for the advisor in question, what did he say to the family? But he, he felt he couldn't say anything. This is the first time he's ever been presented with a situation like this, and, and he was shocked, didn't know what to say, and actually felt it was inappropriate to actually give any advice in the situation, given the implications of that advice could lead to a life support plug being pulled. Or in a less extreme case, perhaps a do not resuscitate yes. order 
being fulfilled. Now, that was a pretty extreme example of the moral dilemmas that the new pension rules have triggered. But a more common one that advisors have also been telling you about is parents feeling under pressure to free up their pensions cash for their children, particularly to be used as housing deposits. Yes, yes. This, I mean, there's a lot of focus, as you mentioned in the introduction, about scams and the risks that pensioners face from strangers wanting to take their pension cash off them. But there's been little attention placed on the risks which are more prevalent to older people from financial abuse, which are more prevalent from family members, particularly adult children, pressuring parents to to hand over cash, etc. And one of the top reasons that people have been cashing in their pensions has been to, to help children. That's what providers and financial advisors are telling us. But at what point does that help become, you know, step into the zone of being an abuse a situation mm. for the elderly person, particularly if they feel it very difficult to resist a request from a child who is laden with debt and needs help with a home deposit? What uh, has been presented to us, though, financial advisors are saying that situations that have come to them where clients are acting against their best interests. So it's very clear in those situations that those individuals under pressure from their children are doing things that they don't think are sensible and the freedoms are enabling those situations to occur because over 55s now have access to very, very large sums of money. I suppose the biggest risk for that particular group is that they'll end up paying a lot of tax on the money that they're drawing down from the pension. So again, the biggest... And depriving themselves of an income in future and they're not sure how long they're going to live. Indeed. And there's also growing evidence that in cases of divorce, spouses can also be vulnerable to missing out on pensions well. Yes, lawyers have told me that they've come across cases where spiteful spouses have tried and attempted to strip a pension while planning to divorce a partner. Uh, They're unaware of it, the spouses, that now that they can get access to their pension they strip it it, potentially in court. That pension is an asset which should be shared between the divorcing partners. But there's an attempt by one partner to deprive the other of of income in the future. If that is not presented to the court later or challenged, there is little you can do to stop someone from doing that. The freedoms have actually allowed that to happen more easily. And there's very little in the way of safeguards for spouses, for example, a member wants to drain their pension. There is no requirement on a trustee to say, well, shall I notify the spouse and let them know what's going on? There's none of that in place. This begs the question, what's the government's response to these issues, the so-called laws of unintended consequences that the freedoms I, have I put, put all this to the Treasury this week. I said, look, you know, there are growing cases of financial abuse. That's worrying. What about the situations where spouses are unaware mm. that, that they might be missing out on income or they've got a determined partner who's determined to deprive them of that income? And their response was, quite um, strangely, that the freedoms have been a success. And the freedoms by Treasury's measure are a success because people are using them and the success metric is not what those outcomes are. So they're not monitoring what people are doing with their money. They're not monitoring whether those outcomes are good or bad. So that, that just tells you that there isn't any way for the government at the moment to assess. We can only bring these situations to their attention. Well, thanks very much, Joe. You can read her full report in FT Money this weekend and we would love to hear what you think about it. Still to come on the show... Will the new London Help to Buy scheme really get first-time buyers onto the capital's dizzying property ladder? But before that, for investors seeking income, could European equities be the place to look? Last week, ECB President Mario Draghi said there was no limit to how far the central bank would go 
announcing it would continue its 60 billion euro a month bond buying quantitative easing until March 2017 and would also cut a key interest rate to a fresh record low of minus 0.3%. This means the divergence between the European and US policymakers is striking. America, of course, is widely expected to raise interest rates next week for the first time in nearly a decade, but FT Money income investing columnist Micah Curry thinks she has spotted an opportunity. Micah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Claire. So Mario Draghi's QE announcement last week disappointed the markets, but you argue in your column for FT Money that he actually got the diagnosis right. Why? That's right. So many commentators dubbed him not so super Mario Draghi after the announcement. And the problem really was that Draghi and the ECB had adopted a very aggressive stance in priming the market and the market was expecting a lot more. Unfortunately, his latest package of stimulus measures fell short of the very optimistic forecast. My opinion is that even though Draghi's announcement disappointed in the short term, over the long term, I think he's got the diagnosis just right. It's not an easy one. If we think of the Eurozone as a very sick patient that we need to wean off its medicines, the medicine being quantitative easing, if you get the patient off that medicine too quickly, they'll suffer withdrawal symptoms. But if the patient is already in recovery, too many drugs can be equally detrimental. Now, there are increasing signs that the Eurozone is in recovery. The data is starting to reflect that. And more quantitative easing at this stage could only add fuel to the fire of a recovery that's quite possibly already started. Well, I like the medical analogy. Fits with the theme of the programme today. But what if the Eurozone disappoints again? Growth has been sluggish, inflation non-existent, and earnings growth still hasn't come through. That's right. It seems as though the Eurozone has disappointed for seemingly forever. But even if next year is a cut and paste of previous years and the Eurozone disappoints, it's worth remembering that a cocktail of factors is providing support for European equities. We've got low bond yields, which means the income baton has been firmly handed to equities. We've got a weak euro, which is good for exports, a collapsing oil price, which is good for the Eurozone's consumers, the extension of quantitative easing and a shift from austerity to growth. However, valuations in the Eurozone still remain depressed. Now we've had the battering of two financial crises in the region. And this has driven dividend yields higher across the continent. So in my opinion, income-hungry investors ignore Europe at their own risk. So what's the income story in Europe, Michael? As a start, the continent is one of the only places where dividend yields are above their 30-year average. Now, this wasn't always the case. If we turn the clock back 10 years, European corporates completely ignored equity income. Some very large established companies even saw dividends as a sign of weakness. However, things have changed in the last 10 years. We've had the great financial crisis. We've had the European sovereign debt crisis. We have an aging population in Europe that demands income-orientated solutions. And we've had large-scale management change. Now, that has driven a sea change in European boardrooms. And it's also worth remembering that after 2008, companies really battened down the hatches mm. and they hoarded cash. And now they're in a very strong position to return that cash to shareholders. Now, dividend yields in some markets are around 4 to 5%. In the current environment, that's very generous. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> They're easily covered by earnings. Um, and the other thing worth remembering is that many companies have dividends that are higher than their bonds, which means they can issue bonds to buy back equity, save cash, and so raise earnings per share. And then my final point is, unlike the UK, where we have income-paying shares sort of focused in certain sectors, 
most mm. notably oil and mining companies, Europe has a much more diverse range of sectors paying income. Yeah, as we saw with Anglo this week, it Absolutely. can be very dangerous to, to rely on, on, on the dividend. Could you highlight some specific sectors in Europe that investors should be considering? It's quite interesting because this is a market where investors haven't been willing to buy hope. A lot of them have rushed into the quality defensive stocks, those bond proxies, companies like L'Oreal, Nestle, Unilever. Now, those companies are quite crowded and actually quite expensive at the moment. But managers like Stephanie Butcher of the Invesco Perpetual European Equity Income Fund are actually finding opportunities in the unloved areas of Europe, so the cyclical industries and Europe's periphery. If we have a look at the pharmaceutical sector, companies like Novartis and Roche, they're returning money to shareholders. In the telecom sector, there's been a lot of regulatory change that have also seen dividends prioritized. And the financial sector is really interesting. So companies like Allianz, UBS, Credit Suisse, all of these companies have their dividend policy at the forefront of management priorities. Well, that's fantastic. That was Micah Curry there, our income investing economist. And you can read her full article in FT Money this weekend. Before our final item, a reminder that you can read this week's FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, or read online, ft.com money, and follow us on Twitter, at FT Money. First-time buyers in London received a boost in the autumn statement in the form of a help-to-buy scheme designed especially for the capital's pricey property market. However, FT Money reports this weekend that the rate London house prices are booming at, the generous subsidies on offer won't be enough to get buyers back on the ladder in many parts of London. I'm joined in the FT studio by James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money. James, thanks for joining us today. Firstly, tell us, how does the London help-to-buy scheme actually work? Well, this is George Osborne's answer to the fact that London prices are so much higher. Um, you know, just to give you the latest figure on that, you know, it's £503,000 is the average London price according to the land registry. And that compares with 186000 across England Wales as a whole. So a first-time buyer under this scheme, which was announced in the autumn statement, mm. this scheme is an extension of the help-to-buy equity loan scheme, which is specifically designed around London. A first-time buyer can scrape together a 5% deposit and then the government will give them an equity loan of 40% towards the purchase of the property. Which is uh, interest-free. For... Well, for five years, it's mm. interest-free. And it has to be on a home costing less than £600,000. That's the cap. And it has to be a new-build home as well. So this is designed, of course, to make the remaining 55% of the value of the house more affordable under mortgage uh, lending condition. So lenders are more likely to, to lend to you if you've got this much equity accounted for. Okay. It seems like a pretty big subsidy, 40%. So isn't that good news for London buyers? I mean, it is a huge subsidy. But in fact, London prices are now so far gone that when you compare them to wages, it's going to be very difficult. The estate agent at Savills has done some analysis, which we've, we've covered this week where they found that a single sort of full-time earner, a median earner, using this scheme will be unable to buy a median-priced home in any London borough because their borrowing requirements for the remaining 55% will be higher than the maximum that's, that's typically lent by mortgage providers. And even dual-income households 
including that includes both full and part-time employment, which is the typical way it's done, would be unable to buy 11 out of the capital's 32 boroughs, and they didn't include the City of London in this, uh, which is the 33rd borough. But Savills basically went through and calculated the size of the mortgage that would be needed. It assumed that everyone would get the 5% deposit and the 40% deposit, and then they compared that to the average incomes. And you know, there are places like Barking and Dagenham where they have the lowest median uh, house prices in London at uh, £225,000. Some would say that's for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even there, you know, you'd need an income of over £32,000 uh, to get the requisite mortgage of 123000 But of course, the, the median income in the borough is, is only 28000 so you're, you're falling short. Could you not put this scheme together with the help to buy ISA and the government's promise to build keenly price starter homes to get you over the line? Well, in theory, yes, you, you can put all these things together and, you know, you will get more people over the line. You know, first-time buyers below the age of 40, they can buy a home with a minimum 20% off discount off the market price under the government's um, starter home scheme. You can also get 25% from the government towards your deposit under the, through, through the help to buy ISA. But the problem is this, this will help at the margin, but it won't help the broad swathe of, of London dwellers or people who want to live in London, where prices are still so high and are continuing to rise. I mean, this is all about London, but many people who can't afford London commute in from out of areas. So, I mean, what about those expensive areas just outside the city limit? Yeah, it, it imposes an arbitrary boundary between Greater London and everything else outside, which unfortunately is not respected by um, the, the free house market prices. Mm. Uh, and you know, arguably, if the government is willing to give you a 40% deposit uh, or 40% loan in Greenwich or Havering, uh, they should be willing to do the same in Sevenoaks or Oxford or, or St. Cambridge Albans. or yeah. St Albans, where house prices are very high. And if you do manage to afford it, what's the repayment plan going to be like? Well, that's the catch. You know, you need to think not only about whether you can afford to get this loan now, but whether you're going to be able to afford it in five years' time, uh, at which point the government will start charging you 1.75% on the loan. And that doesn't, that, that doesn't stay uh, the same. It goes up. It goes up by the rise in the retail prices index plus 1%. That's not the only thing uh, as well. There's the, there's the interest that you pay on your mortgage. You might think, having done your sums now, that you, know, that you can qualify for the mortgage for the remaining amount after your you know, deposit and mm. your equity loan. But your lender's going to want to look at whether you can still repay that loan if interest rates go up again, as they're ex- eventually expected to do. And so assuming that the mortgage rate goes from, say, 2.5% initially to 4.5% five years yep. later, which is not an outrageous assumption, the costs of servicing the total debts start on average, at about sort of one-fifth for borrowers, which is, you know, reasonable. Affordable. But then suddenly they go up to close to one-third later on. And depending on your income, the mortgage lender might simply say, look, you just can't afford it. Well, lots to think about there. Thanks very much, James. And you can read his full report in FT Money this weekend. Don't forget... We're hosting an event in the new year where readers can meet John Lee, our columnist at the FT's London offices, and quiz him on his investment strategy that led to him building up an ISA worth £4.5 million. To be held on the evening of Thursday the 14th of January, tickets cost £25. If you'd like one, email me, money at ft.com, and we'll be in touch. We'd love to know what you think about the moral dilemmas arising from new pensions freedoms or about money matters more generally. 
You can get us via email. Our address is money at ft.com or tweet us at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. The Money Show was produced and edited in London by Naomi Rovnik. We will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Josephine Cumbo, Micah Curry and James Pick. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.